0: Hello, and a warm welcome to Wind Your Neck in episode two. And I'm your host, Niall Annett, as always. It's a pleasure of mine today to welcome a man who, only a couple of nights ago, was busy dispatching the South Africans for a series win of 3 0. So it's my pleasure to welcome David Milan to the show. David, a warm welcome. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. How are you keeping?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me up. It uh, seems we enjoyed it last night, so it's um, you know late to, late to bed, but um, you know all good, happy otherwise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you are delighted. It's it was an amazing 99, David, and and the the match itself went really well for you. I suppose you must just be like, you know, still on cloud nine after how it went. The partnership that you struck up there. Um, with Josh Butler was just brilliant and and how, how do you kind of feel a couple of days afterwards are you still on cloud nine?
1: Yeah still buzzing um, you know first and foremost to win a series is great um, but then to actually contribute in the way that I did um, is extremely pleasing um, you know so at the time when you have done it especially when there's no crowds at the moment you sort of it doesn't really sink in but then when you get back to your room and you wake up the next morning and you start sort of um, thinking about what happened that's when you start really enjoying it. Um, you know, so it's been um yeah, it's been a good day thinking about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of hard work. And we're gonna get into some of the seriously dedicated hard work that you've put in over your career and moments like that can be even more special and I think you know it's worth mentioning that 167 stand between yourself and Joss Butler like when you're in the groove in the crease with someone like him and you're both just working really well with each other and you and it's a record stand like that how does it feel you know people talk about purple patches is that how it felt?
1: I wouldn't say that I think I think the way 2020 I mean, especially cricket works, is it's very rare that both guys go well at the same time. There'll be periods in the game where, say myself, we'll, I'll dominate for a three or a four-over period and then a different bowler potential will come on that I potentially would struggle against and the other batsman will then find his rhythm and fans this guy. And then suddenly you'll sort of dovetail along each other and across each other or against each other, um, you know, to, to sort of putting the pressure on from different ends at different times of the game. Um, You know, I think when partnerships don't work to some extent is when both of you lose momentum at the same time or once you both lose momentum, that's when someone panics, someone takes a risk. Um, You know, so last night when I struggled a bit, Josh took the initiative and when Josh was sort of struggling a little bit, I took the initiative. So we did the pressure of each other really well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because we talk a lot in sport about momentum and particularly in rugby, which is obviously, uh, it's my background, uh, David, and we talk constantly about trying to shift momentum. And I'm looking forward to later on discussing how cricket can be perceived as a, particularly as a batsman, like you are, it can be perceived that you're an individual within a team sport, but you're very clearly there stating that, um, when you're batting with someone, it's, it's a team, it's a team effort.
1: Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, it's, it's very rare that it's just one person that wins a game, especially when, you, when you're batting. It's amazing how when you actually break it down, the partnership that you had actually wrestles that momentum back and it sort of takes the pressure from you as the batting unit and exert it onto the bowlers. Um, you know, once you do that, um, by taking either the positive option or you take your foot off the gas and you soak up the pressure, so whichever way you want to do it, um, it's amazing how you can do it a lot easier when you have two people working together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, obviously, everyone in the UK, particularly in England, where I'm based now, is going to be well aware of the incredible effort you put in there. But the perfectionist in you, the, the, the dedicated hard worker that having not spoken to people who know you um, say that you are, are you frustrated to finish on 99? Or is it a matter of just getting the job done for the team?
1: Yeah, I, I think in hindsight, when you look back, you know, when you need two runs to get 100 and need one run to win, uh, you're disappointed that you don't hit that ball for four. Um, You know, but in the greater scheme of things, you know, the only thing that's different is you have a a one in the one column instead of in the 50 column and the 100 column instead of the 50 column. Um, And ultimately, you know, even though you pay to score 100, you pay to win games of cricket and and you're selected to win games of cricket. And, you know, that's probably the more satisfying bit for me, especially for my side, is that I pride myself on being there at the end to win games. The game before contributed well to winning the game but I didn't finish it off so I was disappointed with that so I was pleased with my performance that I didn't just contribute that I was actually there at the end
0: yeah big players are there in the big moments and you certainly were there the other evening and I suppose you know we're going to go through some of the um, emotional and mental aspects of what it's like being in the crease and big pressure moments. And before we get there, I think there's a different side to the world at the moment. And particularly in cricket players, you know, you guys are in this biosecure bubble in inverted commas. And I know that's a very different biosecure bubble in the UK than it is in, in South Africa where you are. Um, how has it been and how have you found the difference between those two biosecure bubbles?
1: Gosh, there's been it's actually a massive difference between the bubbles here and the bubbles in the UK, but I do think that's sort of come about because we now know more about the virus and the people that are organizing these bubbles are more aware of what they can and can't do and what what and how people can be affected or infected by this virus. Um you know, so the ones in, in the UK we were on-site hotels. So if you opened yes. your window or your in the morning, you were staring at the cricket ground, and if you weren't in your room, you were either training or you were in the changing room or you were in the gym in the changing room. There was no release. Um, you just felt like you were living, eating, breathing cricket, which is, you know, sometimes can be good, but sometimes it takes you its toll mentally. Um, so I found that bubble really hard. But then coming out here to South Africa, where we're staying off site, um, we have a lovely hotel. Um, you know, Cricket South Africa is tussle us with that. Um, we have awesome outdoor areas. There's a pool. Uh, Kim is outside as well so there's so many things that you can do to feel like you're getting outside of your room Um, so when you are actually outside it actually feels like you're going for a coffee in in a normal coffee shop and all you're doing is you're sitting with a different guy in the team next day Um, you know today we had a day off with 30 odd degrees the boys all sat at the pool and it's amazing how from a mental side how much difference that makes to be able to get some fresh air to be able to do an activity that you think you would usually do on a day off. Um, you know, it just it, it just enables you to take that step away from cricket to be able to then take one step forward when the game's actually
0: come on. And again, we're going to keep reiterating this. Like, I think your, the perception of you in the media um, and the perception of you from people who know you is that you are one of the most dedicated, hardworking cricketers um, about. You spend a lot of time um, honing your craft and making sure that you're in the right place mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically to produce the goods whenever you have to. So even for you being in the UK and having cricket on top of you all the time, was it nearly too much?
1: Yeah, I I felt it really hard work, especially with the pressures of international cricket. You know, the scrutiny. I know there's no crowds. You know, especially with this lockdown, I feel there's more time for people to write things. There's more time (laughs) for people to think up things. So, you know, there's no release now with Twitter and Instagram and, and, you know, the internet, newspapers. There's just so many people that have opinions. So when you have all of that go along, plus you're stuck in cricket, plus when you want to socialise and do something different, you're sat around 15 cricket again and and then it just becomes constant cricket, 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 which switch off from it, it becomes quite hard. Um, And, you know, I'm a bit of a cricket badger, but, you know, there's enough is enough sometimes. Um, But, you know, it's, you know, it's it's what we signed up to do. We knew what we were getting ourselves into uh, with these biosecure bubbles. So at the end of the day, you know, it's something that we just had to get on with and and get used to find ways, you know, call of duty, I think is uh, probably, Earned a lot of money off the boys uh, in, in these lockdown bubbles, um, you know, with the amount that they're playing because that's that seems to be the way that the boys are spending a lot of time with the earphones on and, and and you know, sort of working. Is it the quads? They work in their quads to yeah. to sort of get through the days. Um, you know, it's been quite exciting from that point.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, the war zone must be massive. its I, I'm not sure if you're a big gamer, but, I mean, we were—we had uh, Duncan Weir, who's a Scottish international um, rugby player, on last week, and he was saying that in their biosecure bubble, they had um, a golf simulator put in the into the hotel. And I know in South Africa, you've actually been able to play golf, but... I mean, being a big golfer, which I know you are, I think there was some course records being set at uh, all over the all over the world because anything on the green was a gimme putt, which I thought it would suit me down to the ground. I have to tell you, but I mean, for you personally, um, it, are you a gamer? And if you're not a gamer, what did you what did you fill your time with in the UK? Yeah,
1: so actually, the UK bubble, I took my Xbox with me, but I didn't actually play it. You know, I think I, I got into the bubble, and I first sort of thought, well. I'll pop it in tomorrow and I'll plug it in and I'll start something tomorrow. Um, But because the, you know, we sort of, you get in and then you have 24 hours waiting for your result back from your COVID test. Once you're then free, you're allowed to leave your room, um, you know, and then as soon as you're allowed to leave your room, you have training and training with the international with with England. It's not just a couple of hours. You're there for an hour and a half, two hours. You're in or out, you know, you have a a session either before or after. Then the training sessions pretty much last about three and a half, four hours. So the time you, training by the time you've had your gym by the time you then had lunch or whether it's an afternoon training you're you're pretty much wasted five or six hours of your day so by the time you get back to your room at three or four o'clock you're actually pretty knackered you have a bit of a chill watch a movie or something it's then dinner you then socialize in the team room for maybe an hour or so and then you're straight back to bed um watch another movie and you're it's the same routine the next day so yeah yeah i think the, the good was that it wasn't too long a build-up. I think the way the ECB structured it was really good, especially for the white ball cricket, that we weren't in there for any days. We didn't need to be in there. Um, You know, so it was sort of play, day off, play, day off, play, travel, two days of training, play, day off, play, day off, play, Mm -hmm. out of the bubble. It actually held quite well.
0: Yeah, definitely. I can imagine. So, I mean, I want to, I want to take you back slightly from, from a couple of days ago and I want to take you to that that second test or um, I, I, I'm sure you call it a test or, or the second game in the series that you just played. But that, that was a big one for you because Man of the Match in Pearl, which is your hometown, born and raised there, playing at um, what I imagine would be your home ground, probably with family and friends, you know, if not... I, I, uh, able to be there. I'm not sure on the, the lockdown restrictions in South Africa, but you, a very close community that you were born and raised in, coming to watch you play for for England. But you had an amazing game. How do you reflect on that?
1: Yeah. So, f- firstly, I wasn't born in Paul. I was actually born in Roehampton in, in, in London, but grew up in Paul. Um, oh, okay. You know, so where I learned, I went, I went to school in Paul, where I learned my cricket was in Paul. You know, I spent hours and hours and hours at that ground. Um, you know, trying to be developed by cricket, well uh, on cricket, which is the, the province that it's, uh, that it represents. Um, you know, so to go back there was awesome. I actually went back there in February with this, the same England team, played a warm up game and got North there. So that was a bit disappointing. My parents actually came and watched. and I got one, I faced one ball. So that was disappointing. <laughs> uh, and this time, luckily they couldn't come and watch, um, you know, not luckily, but it would have been nice if they were there and, and a full house. Um, you know, I, at one point I was feeling on the boundary and I turned around and the guy who coached me at school was sitting on the boundary. He was helping throw the balls back. And, no you know, way. on the other side of the ground, one of the was a guy that when I go back to, to South Africa and see my parents, and I need work done. I need some help done with my cricket. I need someone to throw me balls. You know, he's there to throw me balls all the time. So he was there as well. So, you know, I felt really familiar being there, which is a nice feeling. Um, you know, and then to score runs and win the game there was, was nice. As I said earlier, I'd, I'd love to have been there at the end to, to walk off with a win. Um, but, you know, I ended up contributing well enough to to get us over the line.
0: Yeah, that sounds really special. It sounds like, you know, uh, these things, you know, in sport, sometimes they don't always come full circle. But to be there and to see familiar faces of people who help mould and grow you to get to that, to that um, I'm sure they wish you were playing for South Africa. But, I mean, to be there watching you play um, outstanding cricket at the end of the day, true fans and true friends and family, that's all they really, really care about, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it's amazing how often on your way up, you forget the people that you were with on the way or down at the bottom. Um, you know, so it, it was nice to be there, to be back. Obviously, you weren't allowed to speak to the guys and to see them and to be in and around them. But when I was there in February, you know, the people that were coaching you, the people that were part of your age that are now involved at in the province. Uh, to be able to see them, chat to them, um, feel at home again. You know, it, it, it's amazing how quickly you forget about you know things that you used to be involved in maybe ten, fifteen, twelve years ago. Um, you know, so that's it's, it's nice to go full circle, as you said.
0: Yeah, it's class. I think that's sometimes there's nice things happen in sport, and that, and that that's one of them. And I think let's let's take a trip back before we cover. You know, some of the. Um, particularly hard yards and, and and consistent performances that you covered um, with Middlesex. I want to cover your international debut first because off the back of all the hard work that you you did put in with Middlesex, you create opportunities for yourself to go and play on the international stage. And in your debut, you know you're hitting a, a seventy-eight or forty-four balls, which is the highest T20I score of an England debutant um, to date. Like. At that stage in your career, um, did you think what? What were your projections for what your career was going to be, um, and how special was it to make your international debut?
1: Yeah, tricky question, actually, in in the sense that you know I, I was picked in the squad the year before and didn't play. You know, when mm-hmm. I when I looked at the squad, I thought you've got know, a good opportunity to play here. Things didn't work out um, selection wise for me then, but then when I got finally got my game. Um, Against South Africa as well down at Cardiff, um, you know, just the, uh, the the release of pressure almost from you know all that hard work, all the sacrifice you've made to be able to get that opportunity, yeah. and not sort of freeze. I think that was the big thing for me is that I, I didn't freeze. I actually embraced that even more in the sense that this could be my one and only chance to represent my country. Just go out there and embrace it, have fun, enjoy it don't hold yourself back by sort of overthinking it and trying to be something you're not just be who you are, do what you do. And it works, it works. At least you can walk away at the end of your career and say, i got that one opportunity. It didn't work. Or you get that one opportunity and did work. And, you know, I I think fortunately I I did well in that game. Um, And after that, an an opportunity came from from that innings, came to play in the tests, which then got me selected on Ashes, which is something that, you know, it's a kid's dream, whether you grow up in – England, Australia, South Africa, it's one of the biggest series that's ever played, Um, you know, especially as me growing up in a cricket family, you watch that, so to be able to be part of that was a dream come true, Um, you know, and then since then it's just been sort of trying to be there and thereabouts with performances in county cricket to be able to be picked for England and in the squad um, to then if someone does get injured or someone's rested to keep getting that opportunity and thankfully every opportunity I get I managed to take the opportunities in especially in twenty twenty cricket to be able to still be here um you know what's it four or five years later um yeah. after my I was picked in.
0: Yeah, yeah I think it's interesting if we touch on the um the 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 trip before you made your debut, you referenced it there whenever you didn't get to play. Did that give you like an insane hunger to want it even more um, you know because often you see when people get particularly close to these these big moments in their sporting careers or, or lives in general um, and they're, they're, they're just an inch away they're an inch away it normally goes one of two ways normally they're either disheartened and almost give up or they find a new gear and a new level for themselves how, how do you reflect on the disappointment of that and then having to kind of just put yourself to, into a different level to try and produce the goods to get back in
1: yeah so After I was selected for that first um, game, I think it was just a one-off game um, and didn't get selected. You know, the next game or the next series was probably about three weeks later and I got a call saying, you're not going to be part of that. And then I think in that winter, other players got selected uh, to play 50 over cricket and and test cricket and what have you. I remember going back to Middlesex, starting well, speaking to the guy overseas at the time called Adam Voges. And I remember speaking to him saying, you know what, I'm... I'm almost losing the passion to keep working as hard to try and make it because I feel like every time I sort of, well, after that squad, I feel like, you know, I didn't get an opportunity. I didn't get a chance to prove myself. And then other players are getting picked from county cricket and are getting the opportunities to prove themselves. So, you know, I I did get a little bit down from that. And, you know, the one thing he said to me was, you know, I feel you're really, really close. Um, yeah. All you can do is the things. You score the runs. You put the, the work in. If you take a step back now, all the hard work you put in over your career would just got to waste. Whereas if you decide I'm going to put it for another year or two years, and I'm going to put every single thing I have into my performances, into my way I prepare, into the way I train, um, you know, all those sort of things. You know, you never know what will happen if you go on a good run. And then it was about maybe two months later I got selected for. For that Twenty Twenty series, um, after off the back of a really good start to the T Twenty Blast, um, you know, so it, it all sort of coincided in a really good period where I was playing well, and I had a mentor that sort of pushed me in the right direction um, as such.
0: Yeah, you kept the faith, and and, and and you know, it's it's one of those things. Like I said, it, sometimes it goes either way, and and thankfully you did. And I think we moved to that period and um, before then, when you when you joined Middlesex, you know. I know, I know loads and loads and loads of South Africans who have met through rugby, and they're such good people. But at the age of 19 or 20, you have a massive cultural shift of moving from South Africa to, to England. You know, I'm interested, before we get to the cricket aspect of it and how you managed to work your way through to being such a consistent performer in county cricket, Like culturally moving from South Africa to England, how did, you, how did you find that? Was it difficult? Or did you just embrace what the UK had to offer?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I really, really enjoyed the UK. I, I must admit that the one thing I found different was um, just the way you know in South Africa you approach sport a certain way, and in England you you sort of um, approach it a different way. So in South Africa it was a sort of growing up with the school systems. It's sort of a win at all costs. You want to win. You just mm. that's what you play. Playing hard. You work your socks off. It's all performances. You want you get judged on your performances. You there to win. I'm not saying that doesn't happen in England, but it's a little bit less of that pushy we're here to win um, type attitude, um, you know, everyone wants to win, but it was a sort of a, it just sort of felt like that wasn't really how you should be sort of structuring it, if you want to put it that way. Um, mm. Probably not explained that well, but it's, you know, I felt like me wanting to get better and me pushing to get better sort of seemed almost as, gosh, what, you know, what's this guy doing? Why does he just not fit into what, you know, we, we've got two-hour training, why does he want to train for three hours?
0: Or yes.
1: Why is he not because he wants to do more or whatever the situation is. Um, you know, so I found that really hard. It probably took me about a good three or four years to get into the sort of swing of how things are going to work in England and county cricket because every time I finished the cricket, I'd go back to South Africa and I'd play club cricket and I'd save my parents for five or six months. So, I'd almost get back into the habits of what happens in South Africa culturally, in and club cricket is taken so seriously as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so it took me a while to get out of that system to realise what I needed to do to be to fit into the English system. Which, you know, in hindsight, it probably took me two or three or four years too long to work that out. I don't know how it took me that long, but. Um, You know, that was something that I found um, really helpful once I worked it out um, to feel more and more comfortable in and around the system.
0: Yeah. And then I think, you know, your Middlesex career goes on to be um, well documented. You have an amazing period there where you're, you know, as I've said before, a a consistent performer. I I wonder, you know, when when you look back at having played with guys like Owen Morgan through large parts of your career, now club and internationally, how do you reflect on that Middlesex journey?
1: Yeah, look, Middlesex, they were my family. Um, you know, that's all I knew in the UK. Um, you know, my development as a cricketer was through Middlesex. You know, I learned what I did in, in South Africa and, you know, the the player, the, you know, the time and investment that Middlesex put into me was unbelievable. Um, you know, I can't fault that in any way. You know, and at playing at Middlesex, I was fortunate enough to play with Theo Morgan, the Andrew Strauss, the o. Shah, the Chris Rogers, David Warner, Gilchrist, Chris Silverwood, the coach now of England, Ed Smith, the national selector. He was the captain when I joined um, joined Middlesex. So, you know, to be able to play with all these type of guys and learn off them is something that you don't really appreciate as much um, at the time. But when you look back, the amount that you learned of them, especially when they invested time in you, was you know, second to none, Um, you know, so I can only thank Middlesex from that. But, you know, I I would say wasn't always consistent at Middlesex. I'd say my first, probably while I was getting used to that sort of cultural difference and the desperation to do well and the Mm. the want, this desperation to want to score runs every single innings to prove my point that I should be there and, you know, I need to be, I really need to do well all the time. Um, You know, that sort of held me back quite a lot and it was only until about 2013 after 2013 i changed a few things with how I approach stuff um, that I really started to be consistent in, in county cricket which then you know it, I earned a, a call up to the Lions in 2015 which is the A team and then you know my first call up was in 2016 so three years after changing a few things you know things started to go in the right direction.
0: Do you mind me asking what some of the things that you changed were?
1: Yeah, so the, it was actually a lot of things. It wasn't only my the on-field stuff; it was the off-field stuff as well. So i um, so if I got into the on-field stuff, you know, I I, I got in touch with Gary Kirsten, who had just finished with India, uh, someone that I respected um, and did a lot of work with um, before he was the India coach. So I went with him and I spoke to him about my technique and how I can get better, um, what he feels I need to do, and the great thing was he worked with my strengths and my weaknesses to make me a better player. So I did a lot of work with him uh, from that side for about three or four months in, in my off-season. Um, I went and saw, there was a guy who actually approached me, actually, and sort of said, like, if you ever need help, it a guy from uh, John McGraw, actually an Irish guy as well, I think he rode for Ireland, actually, from, you know, the rowing, and um, he sort of approached me and said, Look, if I ever need any help, come over a chat with me. And, you know, I think it's basic stuff, just where I am in terms of, you know, Draw a circle, you know, what are my support structures like? What's my fitness like? Um, who's the best cricket in the world? At the time, it was AB de Villiers, in my opinion. So he was obviously ranked a 10 in all of that, with all these structures that he had in place. And it was amazing when I rated myself um, to AB how, you know, I'm a four here, my fitness out five could consider a fitness. And I was like, I've got work to do to catch up with someone who's the best in the world in these departments. And these are all things that I can control. They weren't the things that are out of my control. So, um, you know, as soon as I started really focusing on improving the things, so trying to get from a five to a seven or from a four to a six or a six or a six to a nine or something in, in terms of my fitness and, and support structures and things like that. Um, it's amazing how, how quickly I found I got to a level where I could compete more consistently because I, I used to go to the gym and, run for 10 minutes and be like there you go I'm fit now I can get through a game of cricket where you know it was amazing when I actually realized that 10 minutes on the treadmill is not going to make me a good player um you know you have to spend half an hour 40 minutes intervals um you know you you cycle for half an hour then you run and and, and you actually do an hour hour and a half cardio a day you know that's when I started seeing the results and, and feeling like I could actually compete at a level on a consistent basis
0: yeah, it just sounds like you took your whole on and off the pitch um, game to a new level um, with the guidance by some some real experts. And I think one of the things that came off the back of the consistent performances at county level was your leadership qualities became um, evident. And the leadership is something that you have done before. And in February 2018, you were appointed the Middlesex captain um, across all three formats, which is impressive in itself. And for the people listening in, you know, we've got a wide-ranging listen- listenership of people who are massive rugby fans and people who maybe don't know the ins and outs of cricket, but like the the captaincy in cricket's massive, <laughs> like the responsibility yeah. and the 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 jobs as such that you end up having to do are huge so firstly, before we move on to the ins and outs of of how that can how you find that you know how would you personally describe your leadership style
1: yeah, so my so my leadership uh, leadership style would have always been asking the players what they want to do um encourage them to play the way they want to play um in the way that we wanted to play as a team, as a leadership group, and that be the coaches, the managing director, um, about how you want to get the best out of the players. Um, you know, I was very big on, I do a lot of homework, so I do a lot of research on teams. Um, I quite like a lot of information, so, you know, I, I'd quite like to speak to a bowler and say, well, if you're playing against this guy, these are his strengths, these are his weaknesses, uh, what do you think about trying XYZ? Um, especially in why you can't just rock up and, and hope you're gonna play you actually have to do a bit of research and a bit of stuff. It actually um paid off and we actually went quite well.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, with the leadership in cricket, you know, the on-field duties are massive and, and uh, along with the on, on-field duties, the off-field duties of selection can be huge as well. So not only does the captain kind of strategically march his team in terms of fielding and who bowls when and, and, and that sort of thing, you also have a huge sense of selection. So how do you juggle the dynamic of that whilst you're still a player and you have relationships and dynamics with people?
1: Yes, I think uh, if the roles are defined early on, I think it's it's pretty easy. Um, in terms of when you select someone, the players know that it's coming from you. When yeah. there's that's not here off the field, when you're not sure if it's the coach or the captain that's picking the team, I think that's when there becomes a bit of a a sort of a you know a, a break between the communication between the players and and the people who are making the decision. Um, you know it is tough when you have to drop your mates um, and you have to look them in the eye and give them the reasons why you're dropping like well you know that's it's never easy but I think if if you in a team where people understand that it's the best for the team and it's not just people dropping you for the sake of it um, for any particular reason that you're actually doing it because you need to win games for cricket um, I think that definitely helps but as you said sometimes we as players especially because it's an individual game in a team game you know you you sort of take things really hard um, from that point of view but um, yeah I think if the roles are defined it it makes it a lot easier but when there's um, it's up a little bit up in the air I think that's when it becomes slightly tougher to manage people off the field Um, you know and then that actually makes a you know a sort of a ripple on the field where people then suddenly don't buy into what the captain wants to do on the field because there's mixed messages coming from different directions so if you can get those structures in place off the field Players know what's happening. They know who's making decisions. Um, When you're asked players to do something, they'll, they'll be able to buy into it because they believe that the decisions being made are in their best interest as well.
0: Yeah, the clarity is crucial, isn't it? I mean, the clarity just provides um, systems uh, for decisions to be made within system, um, as opposed to people feeling like picked on or whatever. But I, th- I suppose the next stage of that career for you, David, is that you make a move to Yorkshire in November 19, 2019. And I think you signed a four year deal there. And the first thing that I want to go straight to is, you know, you speak openly about, how uh, Middlesex was your family and, and they, they gave you a lot. So what was, the, what was the feeling for that move at the time? Was it just that you needed a fresh start to try and um, bring the best cricket out in your, in your world or, or what was the thinking?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I was 30, well now I'm 33 now, so I was 32 then. Um, and I got to the stage where, you know, I felt I needed a new challenge, I felt yeah. I needed, um, you know, I sort of, you know, I, I still wanted to play for England. I didn't think my England career was over. Um, not that I couldn't have stayed at Middlesex and, and still played for England, but I felt of I course. wanted to keep pushing myself in an environment where um, you know you're going in fresh. You have to um, you know work your socks off to be to earn the trust of the players that you're playing with. The new players. Um, it's not a historical thing of um, Bob Melas here. This is how Mallor approaches it. We'll just you know this is how he does it. It's you go in, you buy into a new something new you push yourself to new ideas to new training regimes to new to new sort of everything um new relationships and what have you you know and it's something that I really enjoyed actually was it was obviously daunting to move um from a team that you've in a place that you've been at for so many years but um you know once I've done it and I've experienced that you know, the change has definitely been really, really good for me. It's something I've really enjoyed.
0: Yeah, evidently it's been good because, you know, when I was banging around Google and um, finding out information, I mean, <laughs> in the third match of the Bob Willis Trophy, the third round of matches in the Bob Willis Trophy, like, you went on to do something which in my mind is just absolutely berserk because as somebody who could never imagine raising the bat for 100, um, you should see the state of me whenever I'm batting on the indoor with the Saffir Lad's. Bowling absolute yorkers at me, um. You know, you went on to to get a double century, um, in, in that game, and that must be that must rank up there in some of the special moments in your in your career.
1: Yeah, it was. You know, I, I've never had a double hundred. I've come close once or twice, so to, to have missed out before was disappointing. Um, you know, and then to go and do it in my first home game for Yorkshire, so the third game of my first home game for Yorkshire, um. And as I said earlier, you want to be able to earn the trust of the players and respect of the player reputation, for what you do in and around the change room and what you do on the field. Um, so to score a double hundred um, that early on in my Yorkshire career, um, you know, just to make me feel at home in the changing room, uh, to make yeah. the players go well. We've just signed a bloke who's going to rock up and do his own thing, and you know, take his paycheck and go home, and someone that really wants to. To get involved and commit, and and, and to to help Yorkshire be a, a, a better team, if you want to put it that way, and to help contribute to the winning, winning trophies. So you know, from that point of view, was extremely satisfying.
0: Yeah and it seems like you know from chatting to you and obviously this is the first time we've met it seems like your role within the culture of a team seems really important to you um i don't know maybe is that is that fair to say because it seems like you're quite desperate for people to respect you as someone who's going to turn up and graft and turn up and be a team player and turn up and provide the goods for what the team needs on that day is that a fair assumption or on on us having met for the first time
1: yeah i think i think we've all made mistakes in our career i think you know if I look back at, at times where I probably haven't felt as comfortable in around a group, it's probably when I've had maybe issues off the field or stuff, you know, going on maybe at a club or whatever it may be, where you have stuff going on, and then you feel like when you go into a up to training or to a game, you actually don't feel like you're able to be the person you want to be to to add to the culture, um, you know. So for me, it's, it's it was a big learning curve over my career that you know, no matter what you have off the field, you try and be the same person consistently in the change room. And, you know, it's mistakes that I've made over my career that I've had to learn from for that. Um, Cause it just, you know, it takes one thing to sort of ruin a culture to, to, to some extent. So, you know, in terms of earning respect from players, um, you know, I think that's massive. Like no matter who you are and what you've done, players don't respect you. It's, you know, it doesn't matter what you do on the field. It's, um, you know, so that's something that you have to be part of or, earn. you know, you don't just people don't just respect you because of who you are, what you've done. You earn the respect of people.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. We had Stuart Lancaster, who's an international rugby coach and, and now works in Ireland on, and he talked about the credibility scale. This is the way he looks at it. And he thinks that um, through actions, your credibility can either improve or or. or go down in a negative sense. And I think that's kind of what you're suggesting is that you're constantly working to have your respect and credibility increased. But, you know, when you look at um, your performance over all three formats, I suppose the leading question is just which of them do you prefer the most? You know, is, you're such an aggressive um, batsman who can produce on in when, when it really matters. And you can also play the long game and sit in there and win long long test matches. But which do you prefer the most? So
1: I'd, I'd say, look, I know I've done well in 2020 cricket, but I'd say test cricket was something that I really enjoyed. Mm. Um, especially playing for England, the support you get from test cricket, it's five days of just like full houses, people cheering and it's like from nine yeah. o'clock of- morning until you go to bed or until you leave the ground at six thirty, seven 7 o'clock at night. It's just, and the scrutiny and the coverage and the, you know, the enjoyment that it brings to people is is absolutely awesome. Um, It's also the toughest cricket in the sense of you make one mistake, you could basically cost the team the game. Uh, Whereas in 2020 cricket, you know, you could make a mistake, but, you know, someone batting at seven who closes off, hit five out the middle of the bat and you've got 30 runs and the game changes. So it's, you know, it's... It's playing the long game, Um, you know, but saying that, I'd say 2020 cricket, you have to probably be the most skillful in not only reading the game, but also having the skills to be able to take the game on when you need to. Um, So I think from a skills perspective, 2020 is probably the hardest. From a mental point of view, test cricket is probably the hardest. Um, You know, 50 over cricket is probably a combination of both of them. So I'd say... Test cricket I enjoyed the most, playing for England. I really love playing 2020 cricket for England as well, but I'd say that was test cricket's the pinnacle.
0: Yeah, so if we're saying, you know, in a hypothetical situation that you've got one more game of cricket left to play, which of the three are you picking?
1: Depends how old I am. If I'm 35 or 36, <laughs> then I'll take the three-hour one. And if I'm 28 years old, I'll take the five.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Good answer. Very good answer. Yeah. Um, no i think it's class i think you know there's no sport that provides the diversity and um, within the, the sport that cricket does you know it's just crazy to think that there's so many different formats which 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 you know um you need to have such different skill sets in and i think you touched on it earlier and you talked about um you know the the actual psychological aspect of being in that crease for a long time and you mentioned it earlier on you said when you played your um debut one of the phrases you use was don't freeze. Okay, so if we dig into the psychological aspect of being in the crease, um, I can never relate to that in any way, but I can relate to um, an isolated skill within rugby after, because I'm a hooker. So psychologically, when you're in there, what sort of tools or, me- or methods are you relying on um, are you using visualization are you using mindfulness because mindfulness is a massive part of sport now you know we, you see a lot of professional teams using the mindfulness breath and um, particularly the French rugby team who are the most well documented within rugby what tools do you lean on whenever you're in there and someone's slinging a ball at your head and you're thinking level yourself calm yourself do the process
1: yeah so I'm I touched on it earlier I'm very preparation based so all my What calms me down, what gets rid of my anxiety, what what makes me feel comfortable at a game is all about my preparation. So whether that's the two weeks leading up, the week leading up, the day before, on my day, on the day of the game, the preparation actually makes me feel really comfortable and at ease so that when I rock up at the game, I don't feel like there's going to be any curveballs. I don't feel like something is going to take me by surprise. So I quite like being a little bit over with my detail in yeah. how I prepare um I think when you get to the crease we all have our routines no matter who whether there be superstitions or routines we all have these little things that we do that makes us feel comfortable and there's something that I really focus on on game days to do little routines little things that whether it's how I put my pads on how I pack my bag unpack my bag it just makes me feel comfortable which is pretty much half the battle won you you need to feel comfortable when you're at a ground. Um, and then for me, when I'm in the moment, when you're walking out to bat and you've got a full house of 20,000 people, uh, the pressure is on, you're walking in, you're looking up, you see the guy bowling, he might be bowling really quick, it might be spinning, it might be a few guys around the bat. It's just about, you know, it's about staying as calm as you possibly can, staying in the moment, taking your time. So I'm a really big one on I make sure I'm ready and before the bowler bowls, which he obviously has to be, but I don't feel like I just need to rush because he's waiting. I make him wait. I make sure that I'm playing the game at my pace and not the bowler's pace, not the the captain's uh, opposition captain team, their intensity. I'm trying to slow and calm everything down so that I'm feeling comfortable in the environment that I am or at that crease. Um, and then after that, it's just once again, it's the routines. It's clear you might watch the ball. It's not premeditating. I feel that if sometimes, like we all do, we get a bit frantic, you get a bit anxious, you get a bit nervous. Sometimes your legs are shaking. It's about sort of taking a step back, you know, sort of taking, you know, if you're thinking about whatever this guy's doing, it's about taking a step back, being in the moment, and then looking forward to what you want to do next. And then it's the same process again. So it's almost a step back and then getting the moment. That's almost sort of my way of doing Things, especially if I'm under pressure it doesn't mean you're going to score runs doesn't guarantee but it just makes you feel comfortable in your little space at a time when as you said it, there's a lot of pressure there's 20,000 people there's 11 guys on you there's cameras everywhere there's yeah. you know scrutiny from all sides so just to be able to stay in that moment do do what you do best um, it just gives me the best chance
0: yeah, it's fascinating it really is. It's an amazing insight into um what it's like when you're in there and I think the one thing I'd like to touch on is that preparation during the week. Like we in rugby do a huge amount of of analysis on percentages and lineouts and what the referee is going to do and I know some of them aren't necessarily um applicable to cricket but there is got to be a huge amount of insight into um, if you're playing against uh, a certain team that has a bowler that you know is dangerous, you're looking at the percentages of the areas that he bowls into, what he does on the last bowl of the over. Well, can you give us any insight into the, the detail that you go into there?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I really like trends. That's something I look at is bowlers' trends, field trends, um, you know, even captaincy trends, what captains do under pressure, yeah. Do they sit back. Um, what does a bowler do if you hit him for four? Does he come harder? Does he take a face off? What's his defensive option? What's his attacking option? So if I'm, if we're behind the game in a out, how's this guy going to bowl in an attacking situation? If we're on top when you walk out and he's just taking a wicket, how, what's he going to do from a defensive point of view to stop more leaks of runs? Um, yeah. you know, I might look at the trends of what they do more under pressure. More than what they do, because I think everyone goes back to what works for them initially. And I really like doing that. It makes me feel comfortable, makes me feel like I'm one step ahead. Um, so that I know that if this guy's gone for seven off the over and there's two balls left, that it, there's a high percentage from his trends that he's probably going to bowl a slower ball and a full length ball, for argument's sake, in this specific time of the game. Um, so that I'm not taken by surprise if he does bowl that. Um, you know, and I I go into a little bit more detail than others. Other guys like a Ben Stokes will just rock up and watch the ball hit it out of the park. He's that talented. And that's what gets me. me, I feel I need the preparation, as I said, to make me feel comfortable and make me feel like I'm one step ahead.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it's like a game of chess. You know, you're constantly trying to, um, trying to preempt, but at the same time, you, you said it earlier on, you just want to make sure that you react and hit the ball. You just want to react and hit the ball. But within that subconsciously, there's all the detail and all the analysis that you've done to create layers of decision-making for you um, within the high-pressure moments. And I think that the last part of this kind of analysis aspect I want to touch on is the review, because the review is hugely useful. You know, anyone who has worked under good coaches knows that there's this loop there's a, there's a feedback loop and and there's they tell you what you should do or what you, they encourage you to do you go and do it and then you have to review what that looks like so as someone who analyzes the game in what sounds like great detail, how do you attempt to review your performance
1: yeah so I'm once I get out I go and look at the the laptop but I go and I go and watch whether I face five balls 20 balls hundred balls I go and watch the majority of those balls to see just how my movements were to see if I was moving as freely as I felt I moved or if it was something that I was doing wrong at the time. So I like to look at that from a technical point of view. Um, I think when it's amazing when you get out and if you're actually honest with yourself, while you're walking off, you actually know if you were switched on, you know, if you were in the right mindset, you know, if you were your intensity was in the right place, you know, if yeah. your thoughts, um, you know, so I do, I, I do walk away and I think about that. So that's sort of on the day. Um, I put it to bed maybe about fifteen or 20 minutes once I got out and then it's about you know sort of focusing on what's happening in the game the time the day after a game I'll get the laptop again and I'll when I have no emotions all my emotions have calmed down I'm not angry I'm not I'm not um, at a state where I'm sort of worked myself up that i'm I'm, I'm ready yeah. to, to sort of snap and then I'll <laughs> look at the set again I'll readdress what my mindset was and see if what, what I thought after the game was similar to what I thought once I've calmed down, um, because it's amazing when, if you how many times you do a review when you've been a little bit emotional and your emotions are high, how you find so many issues and you find so many, you, 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 almost the language you use to yourself is almost detrimental to what you're going to do the next day. So um, I, I then compare the two of what I've done to see if there's anything that correlates and if there's anything that I think I did on the day whilst i was on the day if that was actually wrong and then for the next game i try to make sure that i can learn from those mistakes um otherwise it's just be doing that review
0: yeah it's class uh, it's re- it's really interesting and um, y- you talk about the emotional side of reviewing you know I- i've done it myself i've watched training back and-, and after training i'm thinking like i am the worst rugby player in the planet and then you'll go back and watch it a couple hours later and you're like okay I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. So there, there is definitely like an emotional state that you can, where it's actually uh, counterproductive to to analyse or try and improve on yourself. I think you touched on something really interesting there. You talk about the your inner voice, your self talk. So can you give us some insight into uh, when you're in the crease what that looks like?
1: Yeah, so I try and keep as positive as I can. I think I've learned that sometimes especially if like someone's balling really quick or, you know, someone's moving the ball in different directions and you're not comfortable, you're not working, you know, you feel like he's going to get you out at the time or you feel like he's got the pressure on you. Um, You know, sometimes you sit there and you start going into your shell a little bit and you start being less positive with your movement. So I try to find that if I can tell myself to keep taking the game on, keep being positive with the way I move towards him, find a way of taking the pressure from that's all on me to pushing the pressure on him. So that he suddenly starts feeling the pressure on him, which then allows me to then dominate him to some extent. Um, so it's always trying to find ways, whether that be with my feet movement, whether that be my body language, um, you know, from an outside point of view, but then from the inside point of view, it's actually thinking positive all the time, and thinking of ways to ex- exert, that, uh, exert that pressure back onto him. But um, yeah, so the language I use will always just be clear the mind, watch the ball, look to score. That would be the type of things that I use to get me in a positive mind uh, mind frame
0: or mindset when I when I'm out in the middle yeah i'm writing that down i don't even care that we're recording i'm writing that down because <laughs> that's gold dust <laughs> clear the mind watch the ball look to score i think there's something in that you know and um in an effort, I mean, what you've summarized there is constantly looking to shift momentum and shift pressure away. That that is, you're looking to try and shift momentum and shift pressure to the opposition to, in, to enable you to score um, the best runs that you can. And I think in an effort to start to try and round it up, you know, I want you to try and um, just humor me here, David. Um, I want you to try and humor me with the, the concept of... I'm stood this pale little Irish man in the crease, okay. But when someone's coming in to sling a ball at you, what are the really intricate cues that you're looking for? Is it is it um, their hips because of the way their hips go? It depend. Is it the hand release? Is it um, the way the ball is actually in the hand before the, if they've even released it? What sort of actual visual cues are you using to try and figure out which shot to play or how to attack the ball? And um, bef- you know, after you've done the analysis that you have,
1: yeah. So there's there's two types of of cricketer to some extent. So there's I'm the type that watches the hand intently. Like I'm I watch that hand and, and I can see personally see when someone runs up if they bowl a slow ball they might cock their wrist slightly just before yeah. release or load up. There's some players that will do it while they run up, they'll change their grip. So I try and watch for any bit of information I can to give me that one little step or that one little bit I can be slightly ahead of the game. Whereas other guys like to watch the box as such or so where the ball will be released from under the hand, they just watch the space and they just react to what they're without. Whereas I look for little cues. Um, that's something that I find works for me. Um, sometimes I look into it a bit too much and I think I see things I don't. Um, I think it has me into trouble now and again. And last night, there was one of the bowlers who, um, you know, he bowled his, his pace on. He was bowling seam up. Sorry, cross seam. A slow ball. He was bowling seam up, um, and it was something that we spoke about as a and We both noticed it, and then the next over, he bowled. He actually bowled every single ball, ball pace on with the seam up, and it threw us off a little bit because <laughs> we both did it too, too much. Um, you know, so it's it's it is it is quite good when you pick up something with a bowler. Um, you know, he might think that he still has the upper hand, but you actually have something on him
0: um,
1: with the way or not slightly different, but it's, um, you know, you have something on him.
0: It's crazy. Well, I can visualize it and I'll tell you, I'm still absolutely bricking myself and I'm probably just going to give it the old miss. Um, I suppose, as we said, to round it off, you know, give us some insight into... How do you word this? Give us some insight into who the, who the best that you've faced. Who are the people that have given you trouble? Who are the people that you've thought I need to be? I need to be a 10 out of 10 here to score runs.
1: Yeah, so actually, you know, funny enough, Kagisa Rabada, the place of South Africa, um, you know, he's one of the best I've faced consistently. Uh, I find him really awkward to face. Um, you know, he's quick, skillful, has, you know, he has everything in his armory from York, the slow balls, the I find him. Um, really, really tough. You know, I think the Australian players in Test cricket that I've played against, I've found them, you know, really, really hard work. They're really quick and they don't drop their pace throughout the game. Um, you know, so I think, but I think it varies as well. Sometimes you have a good day when you face a bowler that's, you know, one of the best that's ever lived and you sort of don't find him that hard and then you face someone that's maybe not, you know, as highly rated as that player, um as as a different player, but you might be having a bad day and he feels quicker and more skillful. So yeah. you know it's really hard to, to sort of put your finger on it to some extent. Um but you know there's there's guys like Dale Stane who've been the best that ever lived, Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, guys that that I've faced and I thought, you know, on a day like I just don't know where I'm scored to run against um They're that good. Um, you know, so there's too many for me to list. I could be here all night oh, to tell course. you like nightmares.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, of course. I, I suppose that's the beauty of the challenge and it sounds like you love the challenge. You love the the challenge of having to face these guys. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I'm keen to touch on in the last couple of questions is what about off the field, David? Like, what is it that um, that you like to do when you're away from cricket? What's, what's your off button in terms of getting away from thinking about yeah, DLC and throwing Yorkers at your head? You know, what is it that makes you switch off?
1: So I've, I've got a dog. <coughs> I've got a little... Uh, Maltese dog that I absolutely ah. love. so I, I try and spend every single opportunity. My wife will probably not like that, but I spend every opportunity as I can with the dog. Um, you know, we so if love I dogs for, here. Oh, if I go for coffee, the dog comes with me. If I go to a restaurant for lunch, the dog comes with me. So i I make sure that the dog is sort of part of my life. Um, you know, I, I'm just gonna sound really boring, but I really love going to the cinema. Um, and I love going to the cinema by myself, funny enough, because it's the nothing wrong
0: with that, nothing wrong no, with that.
1: Exactly. No one can bother me. I don't look at my phone. I have no distractions. It's the one place where I have two hours of just being like looking at something and just watching this movie and just being able to relax without any pressure. That's sort of you know something that I've um, I, I find gets me away. But you know, apart from that, it's just a normal thing. You go out for dinner when you can. You just find ways of getting your mind off off cricket because if you just think about it all the time, which is something I used to do as a kid. It, it just burns you out. It just wears you down to the extent where you just, you actually hinder yourself and you just get worse and worse.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quickly, before we move on from the cinema thing, because I'm a massive cinema geek, favourite genre of movie?
1: I love anything action-wise, I can tell you that way. Anything action. that just, bit of action there. Yeah. Do you know what? I've, I've actually started watching because I've, I've pretty much completed Netflix after all these bubbles. <laughs> like, four- I bought a zombie movie from, I don't know, South Korea. I've like, got into zombies now, so I don't know what No, I'm
0: no, no. I've, I've seen this. I've seen this. The Korean zombie uh, uh, the Train, TV show.
1: I watched it. It's called The Train to Something. I started watching that. Um, so it just shows you what i got myself into.
0: Hey, too many bubbles, too many bubbles. Okay, so um, we look forward to um, what's coming next, okay? And I think you've got a couple of big. Uh, big things in, in the pipeline. You know, firstly, I'd like to say a big thank you for your time. It's an amazing effort for you to jump on with us only a couple of nights after your, your amazing victory. But the party doesn't stop here. You know, you're flying to Australia now to take part in the big bash for the Hobart Hurricanes. Um, and, and what you're facing is another two weeks in quarantine. So what's the plan for the two weeks out there?
1: I need to find a few more zombie movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm dreading that it you know it's i find as i said i found the english one bubble pretty hard when you're still able to get out for three or four hours a day um so i'm I'm pretty much dreading this i'm probably gonna have to sort myself out mentally over the next two or three days and prepare for that mentally and yeah just sort of what i'm going to experience but you know it's going to give me times to find a few more shows and to get better on Warzone. i think i think uh, yeah As as well as, you know, they've been pretty good in the sense that they're going to give us a lot of gym equipment. So it gives me time to actually work on my body and and, and look after myself and get myself ready for a tournament, which you don't really usually have uh, from tournament to tournament in the winter. So the two-week period will actually give me time to sort of get rid of a few of the niggles that I have at the moment, uh, this old creaking body, uh, try and get that sort of nick for the the Hobart Hurricanes because, you know, I'm thoroughly looking forward to playing out there, something I've always wanted to do. So um, it's going to be good fun.
0: Yeah, so your first time in the Big Bash, I mean, what does the Big Bash present for you, um, the opportunity for you?
1: Well, I think any cricket you play in these tournaments gives for presents you an opportunity to stake your claim, not only internationally, but for other tournaments. Um, you know, the big thing about these tournaments, and it's something that doesn't get touched on enough, is you play as an overseas, you're expected to score runs. Um, the standard of the tournaments are very, very good. So it's as close as you get to replicating international cricket. So the more tournaments you play, the more you get used to the expectation of being an overseas which is replicates the expectation of playing for your country where you're expecting to score runs every time um you, you're moving into a new environment where you have to fit in straight away uh, you have to buy into the culture which is a different thing so you learn so much about yourself as a person uh from that point of view but then from a cricketing point of view it gives you an opportunity to improve your game work with different coaches work in different conditions expand your game in certain things you know there's you know, if if you keep playing well and you play international cricket, there'll always be a tournament, uh, or sorry, a, a World Cup or a, a a World tournament, whether it be in India or Australia or Bangladesh or South Africa. So the more conditions you can get yourself around to, the more you'll learn how to adapt. If you ever get to a stage where you're playing there in in the future, whether it be again for the same tournament or or internationally.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think I mean to to to, to finalize. You know, I've seen the Mumbai Nights on Netflix documentary. Surely the IPLs on the cards next. It would be amazing to go and play um, in the biggest competition for cricket in the world.
1: Yeah, look, that would be the dream um, playing IPL. Um, you know, in terms of tournament-based things, is the pinnacle. Um, you know, so to be able to be part of that would be absolutely like fantastic. You know, whether or not I'll be lucky enough to get in, there's a different story. That's there's a hell of a lot of good players that put their name in, um, you know. So hopefully, uh, you know, there's someone that uh, likes the look of me and and, and can put in a bid. Um, that would be very exciting. But you know, if I don't end up playing, that's not the end of the world. It's, it's it'll be a great experience to get involved in. But you know,
0: it's it's not the be all and end all yeah absolutely well I think as the South Africans over here say we'll be holding thumbs for you and um, that's fingers crossed for everybody in the UK and um, I think it'll be amazing to see you out there and I just want to say again like a super big thank you for taking the time to give some insight there from someone who's doing it at the elite level um, you know only a matter of days ago and um, I hope you get through the quarantine okay and absolutely smash it for the Hobart Hurricanes so look after yourself and thank you very much David
1: thank you very much appreciate you having me